If you've ever traveled overseas, you've experienced firsthand the difficulty that comes from stepping into what's foreign. Though chances are that if you have gone overseas, you had someone with you who knew the local language, the local customs, the local geography, who could help you navigate your time while you're in the foreign land. Imagine, though, not having a cultural translator, not having a, a geographic guide, not having someone who knows the language who can get you to where you need to be. You would feel lost. And you'd be painfully aware that you don't belong here. And this is not home. This is not where you should be. And that can happen anytime we experience something new. Deschler is a great place to live. And if you live in Ruskin, I'm sure that's a great place to live too. Or in the country, oh, this area is a great place to live there. It's easy, it's easy to navigate. And it has just about anything that you might need. And it's familiar for us. You can probably drive to church without even really thinking about where you're going because you're used to the drive or wherever you go. We've grown accustomed to the rituals and the rhythms that we have, and it brings a sense of comfort to us. It brings a sense of belonging to us. We know what to expect. There are variations at times, but never anything too drastic. We like it here. It's safe. It's comfortable. It's home. And it's hard to understand why anyone would venture into an unknown place. Leaving means venturing into the unfamiliar and the unknown. And who knows what kind of danger lies out there. It's intimidating. Why would we ever leave? After all, everything we need is already here. Church can be the same way. Some of us can't remember a time where church wasn't a part of our lives. We've always gone. It's what we know. It's what we're comfortable with. And much of our church practice reflects that, that we've always done it that way. There's one little caveat, though. Our definition of always varies. It's not the same for each person. It could mean a year. It could mean five years. It could be the 24 years that we've had a church building here. It could be the 36 years that we've existed as a congregation. But it could also extend into your childhood, for those of you who are older than 36, it extends to the beyond to the formation of our congregation, reaches back into the church of your childhood. We are what we are today because it's familiar to us. It's comfortable. And in a sense, it's what we've always done. And I recognize that that's an oversimplification, and I'm not here to comment on whether that's good or bad. I'm just saying this is what we're comfortable with. It's what we know, what we have experienced. But what if there was a time when all of this was foreign to you? What if there was a time that existed before always, as you and I use the term always? Christianity stands as a stark contrast to the world. We may remember a time where the world was a bit more Christian than it is today, and we long for it to be like that again. But Christianity is foreign to this world. It's always been foreign and contrary to this world. For those who've grown up in the church, that claim defies our experience because it's become so familiar to us. But I invite you to consider this, that there was a time when all of this was foreign to you too. And if we fail to see this as having something, been something foreign to us, we're at risk of replacing the beauty of the gospel with a self-righteous entitlement, and we lose the gospel itself. We may maintain an external connection with the kingdom of God, but spiritually, we remain 
foreigners and outsiders. I invite you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 17, as we read the text for this morning's message. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 17. And, and again, if you are able, I invite you to stand out of respect for the gospel. Ephesians 2, 11 through 17, beginning a reading in Jesus' name. Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of, the, of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you, who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. Let's pray. Father God, these are your words, and again, your word is truth. We thank you, Lord, that your truth has come to us, that you have proclaimed peace to us, and you desire to do that for us here again this morning through your word. We pray that it would do what it's designed to do in our hearts, that you would draw our hearts to you today. In the meditations of our Hearts, the thoughts of our minds be pleasing and acceptable to you and in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Paul is writing this letter to an audience that he never would have been acquainted with had the Lord not interrupted his life plans. Paul's known as the apostle to the Gentiles. But before Paul was a Christian, Paul was a devout Jew, a Pharisee of Pharisees, he says. Simply put, he lived a better life than you or a better life than me. He was better than both of us. He lived a ceremonially and a morally pure life. He vigorously kept the law. He didn't defile himself by rubbing shoulders with those unclean people, whoever those unclean people might be, and he would define them as anyone who is not a Jew. He's writing this letter to people who are primarily not Jews. And he has a message for them, a message of encouragement for them. Paul used to be the guardian of the faith. He was one of God's chosen people. He was actively seeking out the heretics who were spreading the misinformation at the time of, of his conversion, or so he thought. And then Jesus appeared to him and blinded him. And in, a, in an ironic turn of events, as Saul loses his physical sight, he gains spiritual sight. And he begins to understand that Jesus is not some heretic who was crucified, but Jesus is the Messiah crucified for him. He is his Savior. And he begins to spiritually see and he becomes saved. He understood that Christ came to save him and, and not only to save him, but to enlist him into Christ's service. To do what? 
to bring the gospel to a people that he never in a million years would have been seen with. Bringing the gospel to a people that he had just spent his entire life trying to avoid, his entire life knowing that he was better than them. Bringing the gospel to pagans, to godless heathens, to the unclean, to sinners. He had a hundred reasons why he shouldn't bring God's message to these people. That the love of Christ compelled him. And God called him to go and bring this message to these people. And so here he is, sharing the good news with these foreigners. There's good news here for us as well, because you and I, as far as I know, no one here is Jewish. And so this good news comes to us. He starts by acknowledging that these two sides, these Jews and Gentiles, were at odds with each other. As, as the gospel reading mentioned, that the Samaritan woman, who is, who is half Jew and half other, but still was set apart from the, the pure Jews, saying, we don't get along, why are you here interacting with me? This shouldn't happen. They're at odds with each other. They were the uncircumcised and the circumcised, the haves and the have-nots. Circumcision was a sign of God's covenant with his people. And it served as a reminder that they were set apart. It was a permanent marker for them. And it became a source of pride. They would say, I'm circumcised. You are not. I am better than you. I am a part of God's covenant people. He cares for me. I'm better than you. We are special. You are not. And you can see how this idea lends itself into an arrogant, holier-than-thou mindset. Calling someone uncircumcised was akin to calling them an outcast. Akin to calling someone who was damned of God. And I put it that way because it's a little easier for us to swallow. But you would never expect someone from the pulpit to say that. But that's what they're saying as they're calling others uncircumcised. We look at that and we don't understand all the baggage that comes with those terms. Circumcision, this physical procedure, became the signifier of who's in and who's out. Paul was of the circumcision. These Ephesian Gentiles, the people to whom he was writing, were uncircumcised. They're not a part of this message, or they shouldn't have been, in Paul's prior life. But the gospel has come to Paul who was circumcised and yet still uncircumcised of his heart. The gospel of Christ bridges that chasm. The next verse sheds more light on how separate these two groups were. As Paul continues to explain, he says, Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, that you were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, that you were strangers to the covenants of promise. You had no hope. You were without God. In the world. Let that sink in for a moment here. Because some of us have only lived a life where we have known Christ. And so it's hard for us to wrap our heads around this idea. We say this doesn't apply to us, but as we are Gentiles, as we have not been born saved, then this also applies to us. And we need to remember this. That say, but for the grace of God, this is us. This is you and this is me separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise. You don't know the promise. These promises aren't yours. You have nothing to cling to. And so you have no hope and you are without God in the world. And that's God with a capital G here. 
Because we all have our own little g gods that we cling to above all else. And Paul just continues to build on the depth of hopelessness that these people had. You had nothing. You were separated from Christ. You didn't belong to God's people. You were on the outside. The wonderful gospel promises of a Messiah coming to free you from sin didn't apply to you because they only applied to God's special people. You didn't have the one true God. You had many gods, but not Yahweh, not the God who defends, not the God who loves, not the God who redeems, not the God who saves. You had no hope. And again, we can think these verses apply to other people. They don't apply to us because I've always gone to church. But these verses apply just as much to church-going folk as those who haven't had that experience. And it also includes the people who've been clinging externally to the the benefits of the promise without holding to the one who made the promise. For all of those saying, I'm circumcised. Saying, I have this sign. I have this external connection. There's something that happened to me that makes me better than you. And I'm going to cling to that because I'm better than you. And yet those who were circumcised, many of whom were lost because they weren't clinging to the one who made the promise. God's gracious gift comes to us, not by our own working or our own choosing. And that includes the choice here to be circumcised. For those who've grown up in the church, this is hard for us to comprehend because, again, you've always known Jesus. You've always had that relationship. He has always been your God. And yes, praise the Lord for that. But that isn't because of your own choosing or your own doing. It's always been the gracious working of God. Ephesians 2 is crystal clear on that from the very beginning. Explaining that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. This is what we are apart from Christ. But God in Christ has acted. And then we know that verse, Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves, not a result of works, so that any man may boast. And then on the heels of this passage, Paul writes these verses for us, saying, remember this, you Gentiles. Remember that this describes you. Remember the hopelessness that you had, that you had no hope here in this world. There was no promise for you to hold on to. When we don't remember that, we stake a claim on some high moral ground or behavior that we might have, something that we've done in in the past. We can behave the same way as the circumcision here in, in verse 11. But again, the uncomfortable truth is that we are no different and we are no better. Apart from Christ, apart from the gracious promise and the work of God, we too would be without God in the world. We too would be without hope and we would be without promise. We would have this life and then unrelenting torment for the rest of eternity to look forward to. Boy, that's a pleasant life, isn't it? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, and, and who knows what, has, what the future has in store for us. Just live each moment as it comes. Nothing you did would matter. You create a wonderful piece of architect. Great. It's going to get burned up. You come up with a few different patents here and there and, and make the world a better place again, great, but for how long it's going to get burned up as well? You fed a person for a day or two, they're going to be hungry again. And what good is feeding someone for a day or two when they spend the rest of eternity burning in hell? We pat ourselves on the back by saying, look at all these wonderful things that I have done, but if there is no hope, it's all meaningless. And as 
uh, King Solomon says it's all a chasing after wind, grasping at vapors. You can't ever grasp them or hold on to them. It dissipates. Nothing in this world would matter or have any meaning because it's all going to be destroyed sooner or later. You're separated from God. His promises don't apply to you. Can you imagine the hopelessness that comes from that? At best, you try to coexist with those religious fanatics while enjoying your life on this earth while it lasts. This is reality for Paul's audience here. This is the mindset of what's going on. You have this this set-apart people who is better than everyone else, who has special promises just for them, and you have the rest of the world who's just grasping at straws. But this is reality for you before the gospel came. Reality for me before the gospel came. But the coming of Christ changes everything. And with the stroke of a pen in verse 13, Paul explained what completely reversed this hopeless situation for all people. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This hopelessness is not yours anymore. You have hope. You were separate from Christ, but now you are in Christ. And Christ in you, united to him. You were excluded from the people of God, but now you have been brought near. And notice the tense of that. You have been brought near. Now you came near. But someone brought you here. Someone brought you in. And this is the working of God in your life. It's not, again, of your own doing. Look back at Ephesians 2 for that. Paul identifies the means by which you've been welcomed into this community of God's people. The means by which you've been welcomed into Christ and united into Christ. And what was it that changes our eternal destination? What was it that takes us from utter hopelessness and despair to a life of hope, meaning, and purpose? Not only meaning and purpose, but of glory. It's the blood of Christ. Paul doesn't point to a simple medical procedure here that separates you from the rest of the world. He doesn't say it's in your ability to keep a morally pure life and to live other or differently from those who we live with. He doesn't say our ability to keep ourselves separate from the world and all those unclean people out there. But it's by the blood of Christ and only by the blood of Christ. And it's the same for each person. And that blood was shed nearly 2,000 years before you or I were born. And it's this blood that gives us hope. So how in the world can we claim to have any participation in that? When it came before you and I were born, It's a gift by God's grace. This is something that the circumcision forgot. They forgot at one time they too were strangers and aliens. They forgot that they too were cut off from God, that they were desperately in need of God's grace. In fact, that's still true today. There's never a day where we wake up on this earth where we aren't desperately in need of God's grace. Both the religious and the non-religious depend on the grace of God, and that will never change. We both need Christ because there's a dividing wall that only he can break down. Verse 14 and 15 explain here that Christ is our peace, and and we looked at this idea of peace in Sunday school this morning. But here is, is Christ our peace, the one who has won peace with God on our behalf. 
when sin first entered into this world, there was a separation that came along with it. Prior to that, Adam and Eve walked with God. Think of it. Walked with God. This morning, got to walk to church with my kids hand in hand. I could see them. I could interact with them. We had a good time doing that. Adam and Eve got to do that with God in the Garden of Eden, in his presence. And they threw all of that away for a bite of fruit to disobey the Lord. And they were expelled. And they were driven from this wonderful Garden of Eden. They were expelled. There was a barrier then between them and God. They hid from God, ashamed of what they had done, ashamed of who they were. And God came to dwell among his people later on in the tabernacle, saying that I want to dwell among you again. But because of the sin, there's going to have to be some separation here because you can't bear to be in my presence. You can't bear to see me as Adam and Eve saw me. You would die because of your sin. And so he had these separations, these different levels where, in places where people could go only so far. And only one day a year, once a year, one person was able to enter into the presence of God. They continued with this tabernacle as it became the temple, more permanent structure. And then that temple was destroyed and rebuilt again. And God again promises to dwell with his people. But there's still that separation until the coming of Christ. When God humbles himself and becomes man and is born with all the limitations that you and I have as human beings. And we see the glory of God. Glory of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. And he dwells among us. Before that, we are separated. But Christ is here in our midst. In their midst as he is walking. But even as they're walking around, they could still go away from Christ. There could still be a time where Christ wasn't able to be seen by them. And Christ says, as he, before he leaves, he says, I'm going. They say, oh, please take me with you. How can we follow with you? And Jesus says, no, no, no. I'm going, you can't come with me, but it's better for you if I go because Christ is going to unite us to himself, sending his Holy Spirit here among us. And so we have it better off now than when Christ was walking here on this earth because his work is finished and complete. And so not only are we with Christ, but we are in Christ, in Christ in us. At the time of this writing, the Gentiles could only get so close to God's presence in the temple. There was a separate court for them, and, and if you were a Jew, you could get a little bit closer to the Lord, so they could be better because they're, they're closer, they're holier than the other people. But in Christ's death, the veil and the curtain was torn, and Christ became the way for all people. He's always been the way for all people, but he levels the playing field, so to speak, here. Look at what Christ says, or Paul says in verse 15. Christ made the two into one new man, establishing peace. These two groups, forever at odds with each other, are made into one. Reconciliation is messy, it's ugly, we don't always do it well. The first song that we sang today, In Christ There Is No East or West, was written by a man who lived through the Civil War, who lived through Reconstruction. And he says, in Christ there is no east and west, there is no north or south either. It doesn't matter what race you are, we are all brothers in Christ. Think of the lens that he sees this gospel truth coming and piercing through the ideas of the time. He lived and saw the ugliness of reconstruction, the ugliness of war and pride, 
And there was a clear north and south, and obviously they had their disagreements. And when the south surrendered and the war ended, that didn't immediately bring an end to the hostilities, did it? Official war was done, but there was still skirmishes. There was still hatred. The hatred continued on. And though we were one country, there was still the north and the south. There's still different cultures, and you can still see those different cultures today. It doesn't mean the north is better than the south, but the south is better than the north. They're different cultures. But we pride ourselves when we say our culture is better than that culture, whatever it is. They have their own ways of life. And yet in Christ, there is no east or west. There is no north or south. And as we modernize this hymn, there is no America or Russia or China. There is Christ and his people. There is no Jew or Gentile. We are all one in Christ, united by Christ, with Christ himself establishing peace. And so if there are Christians in China, there are Christians in China, we can unite ourselves with them. We are united with them. Our political ideologies don't divide us and separate us. We are one in Christ because Christ himself has established peace. Christ himself has paid the debts. He took the loss. And how did he do that? It wasn't easy, nor was it pleasant. In verse 16, it was costly. Cost his life through the cross. This is how the barrier was brought down. That's where the blood of Christ was spilled. That's where his debts were paid. It's the source and fount of every blessing poured out for us in Christ Jesus. He revealed to all people here that the playing field is level, and it's that same blood that flows for all people. It always has been a level playing field, but that event changes the course of humanity for eternity. Yet that miracle would have all been for nothing if we never knew it. The promise of God never came to you. If we never heard it, if we were completely ignorant of it, it wouldn't change anything. If we hadn't heard about it, we'd still be excluded. We would still be strangers to the promise, having no hope without God in the world. We'd make ourselves our own little gods that we would turn to and, and try to find all hope and meaning in. And we often still do that. And the funny thing is I usually tend to look like a better version of ourselves so that at the end of the day, we can save ourselves. They usually look like a way that can separate me from everyone else. They usually look like a way that allows me to believe the lie that I am better than everyone else. And it completely disregards verse 11 here, that at one time I was separated from Christ. At one time I had no hope, but Christ comes he took on flesh and entered into this hot mess to both accomplish and proclaim peace to those who were far away and to those who were near. He came to preach peace to both groups. He came to preach peace to all mankind. But again, we look back at history. Jesus died, he rose again, and, and he ascended. And if we look back at the pages of history, you can see that Jesus didn't go to Ephesus in his lifetime. In his earthly ministry, he didn't go there. So how can we say here that he preached peace to these Ephesians? How did Christ bring that message of peace to the Ephesians? How did Christ bring this message of peace to you? We haven't seen him, have we? He hasn't come and shown up and said, Hey guys, I, I'm Jesus. Here's the holes that you can see. And, and I have a special message just for you here. So how does he do it? He uses his word. 
And he uses people who are in Christ to bring his word to you. He sent Paul to Ephesus. This one who was of the circumcision, he goes to the uncircumcised to bring a message that, hey, look, we're on the same page here. This is what Christ has done for you. Remember all that hate? All of that discrepancies that we had before in the past? They're all gone because of what Christ has done for you and for me. And that message has come to you. And how does it come to you? He's used other brothers and sisters in the faith to bring that message to you. Whether it's parents, friends, pastors, Sunday school teachers, evangelists, and neighbors. If you are in Christ today, it's because Christ, the message of Christ has come to you from someone, someone bringing his word to you. And if you are in Christ today, he is using you to bring that message to others. You are in Christ to preach peace to those who are without God, those who are near and those who are far. He uses you to bring the gospel to those who are excluded, to the strangers, to those without hope and without God. Those who, but for the grace of God, are just like you and me. We are not different. Christ spanned the chasm between heaven and earth to bring the gospel to you, to give you a future and a hope, to bring you from darkness and despair to himself. And Christ is using you and me to bring that work here to the others among us, who again, we are on a level page with. We are no better than than them. They are no worse than us. Each one of us is desperately in need of God's grace. And God, through Christ, through his word, comes to us to bring us this grace, and not only to bring us this grace, but to unite us with Christ. By grace you have been saved through faith. And it's not of yourselves so that any one of us would boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Brothers and sisters, God has called us into his service, that we would walk in these good works, these good works of bringing this message, proclaiming peace to those who are cut off, those who are outside, those who are without hope in this world. And as we do that, Christ is bringing people to himself, making the two into one new man.